Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about how author Jack London conceived his plan to travel around the world on a yacht, and how he took the first steps towards implementing that plan. And it's a very interesting story. It's a very little-known story also. You're probably wondering, you know, why have I never heard of this before? Why have I never even been told about this before. Well, Jack London wrote a lot, and he did a lot. And it's hard, really, unless you're trying to go out of your way to to learn about a specific subject. It's, It's really hard to absorb everything that someone like him did. It's not easy. But what I'm going to talk about, really, is how he conceived and took the first steps towards his goal of sailing around the world in his own yacht that he built. Very interesting story, because I think it says a lot about life, about him, about the meaning of exploration and discovery, about about which I've written a lot, uh, written many essays about that, if you follow my my essays and uh, on my site, qcurtius.com. You can see I have a whole section there on travel and exploration. So this is the type of thing that's very interesting to me because I think it says a lot about what we can do in our own lives and how we can incorporate this vision and this thinking into our own lives. And that's what I really think that you should try to reflect on when you listen to some of the facts here about Jack London's uh, journey of discovery and exploration. So think about that. All right, so let's start here. The source for this podcast is Jack London's memoir of his travel, his travels to the Pacific. Because even though he didn't make it around the world, his his, his trip was cut short by by uh, sickness and troubles with the uh, with the yacht. But he did spend a lot of time in the South Pacific, and he wrote a book about his experiences called "The Cruise of the Snark." Snark. Now, I know the word snark modernly has a very negative connotation, but this was just a nonsense word that he made up. Well, he didn't make it up, but he just uh, he decided to call his ship that because he couldn't think of any other appropriate name. So one name is as good as another, and that's what he chose. But what's really interesting to me is in the foreword, he talks about how he came up with the idea of sailing around the world. And remember, this was a guy who already had a ranch in Sonoma County in California. And he had a lot to do. He had to deal with all of the ranch operations. Anyone who's ever been in charge of a large piece of property knows that it's a full-time job. But what I really like here is is this. Well, I'm going to read for you a passage from the book wherein he talks about why he wanted to make this trip and how he tried to explain this trip to his friends. And he wasn't just going alone. He was going to take his wife, Charmian, along with him. I love that name. It's a very nice name. I've never heard that before on on anyone else except Jack London's wife, Charmian. C-H-A-R-M-I-A-N. So here here is... Let me read this passage to you, and then you can decide what you... um, Uh, what you think. We thought we would start in four or five years. Then the lure of the adventure began to grip us. 
Why not start at once? We'd never be younger, any of us. Let the orchard, the vineyard, and hedges be growing up while we were away. When we came back, they would still be ready for us, and we could live in the barn while we built the house. So the trip was decided upon, and the building of the snark began. We named her the snark because we could not think of any other name. This information is given for the benefit of those who otherwise might think there is something occult in the name. Our friends cannot understand why we make this voyage. They shudder and moan and raise their hands. No amount of explanation can make them comprehend that we are moving along the line of least resistance, that it is easier for us to go down to the sea in a small ship than to remain on dry land, just as it is easier for them to remain on dry land than to go down to the sea in the small ship. This state of mind comes of an undue prominence of the ego. They cannot get away from themselves. They cannot come out of themselves long enough to see that their line of least resistance is not necessarily everybody else's line of least resistance. They make of their own bundle of desires, likes, and dislikes a yardstick wherewith to measure the desires, likes, and dislikes of all creatures. This is unfair. I tell them so. But they cannot get away from their own miserable egos long enough to hear me. They think I am crazy. In return, I am sympathetic. It is a state of mind familiar to me. We are all prone to think there is something wrong with the mental processes of the man who disagrees with us. The ultimate word is, I like. It lies beneath philosophy and is twined about the heart of life. So, that concludes that passage. Uh, but what do you think? I think this is a very important passage here that Jack London talks about in his foreword. And it describes the thinking, really. The thinking and a comparison of the thinking between a true explorer and a true daredevil, and people who just, as he says, cannot set aside their own egos. They just can't set aside their own egos long enough to allow for the expansion of their minds. They just can't do it. They can't do it, they, they can't comprehend it, and they resent those who do, who, who do do it. As he says, they cannot get away from themselves. They think that their own desires, likes, and dislikes are the ultimate yardsticks, the ultimate measuring sticks with which to measure everything else. And this really is the heart of the matter. This is really what it comes down to. The difference between the traveler and the stay-at-home is the person who is willing to set aside to sublimate his own ego for the chance at new experiences for the chance at broadening his perception of the world, and for a chance at knowledge. And that really is what I think separates the true traveler from the stay-at-home. Now, when Jack embarked on the construction, and it's very interesting to hear him talk about the construction of the snark, because he did a lot wrong. You know, I, I when I'm going through these pages of him, uh, actually, in the first chapter of the of the book is called is aptly named inconceivable and monstrous, inconceivable and monstrous. And I think those two adjectives very, very well describe 
the agonizing process of building this yacht. Well, for the, for the first the first problem that I see was that Jack decided to build his own vessel instead of just buy one that had already been seaworthy, that was already tested, that had already been um, had already been professionally built by someone else for for whatever reason. And he doesn't really describe the reason. He decided to build his own boat and you know this is a this was a problem this was a problem and i wish you know if i had been his attorney at that time if i had in my own hypothetical world if i had had the opportunity to talk to him i would have said jack you've got to really watch costs you've got to be careful you cannot trust these contractors they're ripping you off because what happened was his original estimate for the building of the snark was seven thousand dollars and again this is remember the first decade of the 20th century you know you figure seven thousand dollars in 1910 or whatever um, you know between 1905 1910 is you know a lot it's a lot of money it may have been worth I don't know um, well I, I'm not probably I haven't looked up the statistics but I'm sure it's probably worth about ten times as as as, uh, as what a dollar is worth now but he he originally thought that the cost would run him around seven thousand dollars, and you know what? Do you want to know what the final cost was? The final cost was upwards, a little bit north of thirty thousand, thirty thousand dollars. So if we, let's just say we we conservatively estimate, the original estimated cost was seventy thousand by in today's dollars, and then three hundred thousand is what it ended up costing. A big difference. It's more than a fourfold increase. Now, I understand that any large project, there are always going to be cost overruns. But the problem here is that it wasn't just about money. It's clear that once they left port, once they left Oakland, that the the, the ship was just not seaworthy. It, it leaked the, uh, the wrought iron that was used for the rigging and the other important parts of the boat, Jack says, it was as brittle as macaroni. In other words, you could just snap it in many places. So it's clear that Jack was ripped off. He was overcharged and provided with shoddy workmanship and shoddy goods, frankly, fixtures. And as I was reading this, or actually say rereading because I read this book many many years ago. I read it when I was a kid, and and, and I didn't remember much of it. So I want I'm, I'm basically rereading it, and it seems like an entirely new book now that I'm have the benefit of adulthood. But in any case, the building of this vessel this vessel was a boondoggle, was just a complete boondoggle, and uh, he describes it in, in in very vivid detail. He says that, uh, um. Well, let me let me read let me read some of his words uh, himself for you. He says, "The snark is a small boat. When I figured seven thousand dollars as her generous cost, I was both generous and correct. I have built barns and houses, and I know the peculiar trait such things have of running past their estimated cost. This knowledge was mine, was already mine when I estimated the probable cost of the building of the snark at seven thousand dollars." Well, she cost 30000 Now, don't ask me, please. It is the truth. I signed the checks and I raised the money. Of course, there is no explaining it. Inconceivable and monstrous is what it is. As you will agree, I know, ere my tale is done. 
Then there was the matter of delay. I dealt with 47 different kinds of union men and with 115 different firms. And not one union man and not one firm of all the union men and all the firms ever delivered anything at the time agreed upon, nor ever was on time for anything except payday and bill collection. Men pledged me their immortal souls that they would deliver a certain thing on a certain date. As a rule, after such a pledging, they rarely exceeded being three months late in delivery. And so it went, and Charmian and I consoled each other by saying what a splendid boat the snark was, so staunch and strong. Also, we would get into the small boat and row out around the snark and gloat over her unbelievably wonderful bow. So, if that wasn't bad enough, it's clear that once the ship actually took to the waves, it was not even seaworthy. It was barely seaworthy. They had to bail constantly. The watertight holds that were supposed to be watertight, the compartments that were supposed to be watertight, were not watertight. Uh, there was a smell of gasoline that, that impermeated everything. I mean, it, it's just really heartbreaking to read this that a man of such fame, and Jack London at that time was probably America's uh, best paid author, was probably America's best paid author in 1906. I think that's when, that's when the actual the ship construction took place in 1906. He was, he was a famous man. He was a famous man. He had earned his keep by the sweat of his brow, but his, um, his discipline was, with money was, was questionable. And I, I'd read a very, very good biography of Jack London, and he was um, he was plagued by debt. He just would borrow and borrow, and live beyond his means. And that's really not a good place to be. It's really not a good place to be. He just uh, uh, was very very nice guy, very nice man. Uh, but he um, he was taken advantage of by his builders, and that really angered me to to read that 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 the constant the constant delays and you know delays. We can accept, I think, up to a point, but when the final product is not just late but also uh, shit, then that's when that's when problems. Uh, that that's when you know that, that you really need to to uh, to make some changes in your life. But um, I'm going to do more podcasts about this book as I go through it because I I really know that there are going to be a lot of interesting lessons in this book that readers and listeners of my site are going to want to share with me and I'm more than happy to provide those for you so but for now what I'd like you to uh, to get out of this podcast is is that spirit replay the first part that I read to you where where Jack talks about describing the spirit of exploration and discovery and I think it's really important to reflect on that because that's what you need to try to do to incorporate into your own life I think you have to incorporate that ethic and that spirit in your own life. No matter what other people say, no matter what other people say or think or do or uh, you know, try to discourage you from taking trips or doing things, they think you're crazy, they think it's a waste of time, don't listen. You only live once. And as long as you are taking reasonable precautions, okay, as long as you are taking reasonable precautions and behaving as a responsible human being, then you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And you will, you will find that you'll learn more from even a modest type of trip than you will in many months of sitting at your desk. All right. 
Before I close here, I'm going to read a few of the G Manifesto's tweets. How can I resist? How can, how, how, how can I resist doing it? So let me go to Twitter here and leave you with something here enjoyable for the day. Because you know what, people? If you can't laugh, if you're not laughing, if you're not trying to tell a few good jokes here, you're really missing the boat. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said, when people objected to his little storytelling and his anecdotes, he said, you know, if I, if I couldn't tell these stories, I would go crazy. If I couldn't read these tweets, I would go crazy. So we've got to try to just surrender ourselves to the world, to the special world here of the... <laughs> of the G Manifesto and just accept it on its own terms and see where it leads us. All right. Most guys have zero jungle raw power. <laughs> and, and instead of developing it, these millennial guys are just swooping weesh guys named Ross and Powers <laughs> and eating soy sauce and high fructose corn syrup at some weesh brunch place. Now, this is not a good way to go through... <laughs> it's just the character count cuts off in sort of a truncated thought there, which is... Well, we get the idea, and there's an, a, a tiger exploding into the water there, which is very, very nice. All right. Here's one. Then Deep Soy and Big Pharma started promoting them as bad for your health. Then all the problems started in America. Insane no one realizes this. <laughs> The, the original collusion. And it's a retweet of a, something from History Lovers Club. It says, cigarettes were promoted as being good for your health until the, until the early 1950s. Okay, so let's keep going here. Keep going. Need to chug a ton of water in a jungle village by the sea. Extremely hesitant to give this as actionable advice because these millennial guys... We'll just go chug on a, on a guy named Walter. Now, this is disgusting. We'll not show a painting of this jungle village by the sea. <laughs> and there's a picture of a, a shoreline with, with nice, lush. And let me tell you, it's obvious he's talking about... All of these tweets are based on direct experience in the sense that his travels, his observations of the world, and... Um, I'll just leave it at that. So, let's keep going here. Let's keep going. All right. Let's see. Some of these are retweets of other people and, and even me. Um, actually, I'll read one of my own. At the end of the day, you need to protect your fiefdom. Self-defense cannot be outsourced. He who relies on others for defense is beholden to them. Many countries out there have forgotten this. Learn to throw your own coconuts. Learn to throw your own coconuts. And that's a, a sentence I came up with uh, just this past week. And there's a picture of monkeys there throwing coconuts. It's a joke, yes, but the, the, the metaphor or the, um, the lesson is a valid one. And, and take that under advisement. Okay. Let's keep going here. Here's one from a, a retweet from a gentleman named Zachariah the Great. I eat extremely healthy, but sometimes I chew gum. And when I say gum, I really mean I chew chunks of jerky made from wild game meats that I bring to my pitmaster. 
the original chewing gum. Millennial guys can't do this. Zero <laughs> mandible strength. This is a good one. I got to retweet this one. This is a good one. And there's a picture of a dude there with <laughs> the cigar, a pit master, like a smokehouse, sort of a stereotypical smokehouse dude. All right. Keep going. Got to keep going here. Let's see what else we can figure out. A lot of these are retweets. See, this this stuff is spreading. This style of tweeting is spreading, and people are really adopting it because it's such a great way of expressing a thought. Pygmy marmosets. Here's one from from June 11th. Pygmy marmosets grew beards and got tattoos before it was safe to do so. Unlike these red pill guys and these manosphere guys who only grew beards and got tattoos after it was safe to do so. I have always been cool with these guys. Pygmy marmosets, that is. Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it. And there's a, uh, there's a picture, a picture of, a, of a pygmy marmoset with its eye staring at the camera. This is a good one. Really good one. That's a good one. All right. Maybe a couple more here. And then we'll close it out. Couple more here. Jungle village by the sea makes all the American problems disappear. No need to work out. Life is a workout. No need to fast. You eat when you can for energy. No technology, just machetes. But I tell these guys, jungle, and they just swoop a Chinese guy named Jung Li. <laughs> oh god. And there's a great picture there of a shoreline with a turtle in the foreground, a crab on the left. Very nice. I retweeted this one already. So you get the idea. You get the idea. Get out there, see the world. Don't be a pudwack and keep laughing and keep learning. Until next time, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.